Let me pray. Father, I just pray that you would speak through the word, that you would give me uh, wisdom to discern what you're wanting to communicate, what through your spirit you're wanting to teach each of us in our individual uh, places where we're at, Lord. And I pray that each of us would have open, uh, humble hearts to receive the good news of your word and to meditate on the glory of the resurrection and, and not just to gain new information, but to be transformed, to live our life differently in light of the reality of the resurrection, Lord. So I just pray for that, that that would be communicating, that your spirit would move even in my weakness and in my inability to communicate this well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to begin in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What can we say about the gospel from this? What are the elements we see in the gospel? The first verse is the idea the gospel is something that can be preached Therefore, the gospel is something that God commands to be communicated through words. St. Francis of Assisi is attributed with the idea of preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. I'm saying it is necessary to use words. Yes, we should demonstrate the gospel through our lives. Yes, it is really important that the the manner of our life demonstrates and communicates and makes the gospel more beautiful in a sense. But it is necessary, and God commands that it be preached. It is a thing that can be preached. It should we should use words. Second, it is something that can be received. It it doesn't apply to a person's life simply because they hear it. Just because you walk into a church doesn't make the gospel all automatically applicable to your life. It must be received. Very important. It's something in which we can stand upon and hold on to. The gospel is not a one-time moment event. It's not something we receive one time and then, oh, I had my conversion experience and now I'm going to go on and do my own thing. Right? It is a ongoing reception. It is an ongoing standing upon it, an ongoing holding to it. I have to preach the gospel to myself daily because I get weary. I get burdened. I forget the beauty of the gospel and I begin to lean, we wander away from the beauty of the gospel. I get condemned in my own heart when I fall short and I need to go back to the gospel daily. It is something to be stood upon and held to. What else about the gospel? He gives, uh, oh, sorry, very important point, almost skipped. By this gospel you are saved. It is the door to salvation. There is no other door to salvation. There is no other name given unto men under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only bridge into fellowship and relationship with God. It is the means of salvation. 
And then what are the core elements of it? He says these are of first importance. One, the death of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just say the death of Jesus Christ. What are the words he says? That Christ died for our sins. Key element. That the death of Christ was a substitutionary atonement for the sins that we committed. So central. You gotta understand that. It is for our sins. Go read, go read and meditate on Isaiah 53, where God says it in so many different ways, that by our, His stripes we are healed, that God laid the iniquity of us all upon here, on Him, right? On, on Him, excuse me. <laughs> Long word. He laid the iniquity of us all on him. And then last, the third key element, second key element is that Jesus was buried. He really was dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't look like he was dead and then revive in the coolness of the cave. He really was dead and he really was buried. The third element is, and this is the introduction to the main point of this whole, um, whole chapter is the resurrection. Jesus really did rise from the dead. That is so central and it's an historical event. He didn't just rise in the disciples' hearts. They didn't just remember him so dearly that it was if he had risen. Many, many years ago, I visited a church in Houston, a very large church, and it was on Ascension Sunday. And the the teacher, the pastor, was speaking, and he started talking about the resurrection, and he started talking like it as if it was just some kind of... um, emotional experience of the disciples and not a real, actual, historical event. He was speaking as if that Jesus just kind of, they remembered him so fondly that Jesus rose in their hearts. And I was there with my father-in-law, who doesn't play. And so when when, when he heard this huge church, right, huge church, he gets it. We're up in the balcony. Boom, he makes a beeline to the pastor. Everybody's walking out. You know, the pastor's glad-handing everybody. Thanks for coming, whatever. He gets in line. He's waiting for the pastor. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Y'all get the car warmed up. Papa's about to make a scene. You know, and so he, he comes up to the man and he's like, so wait, you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the guy's like, well, you know, and he says some kind of fancy seminary talk. And then he said, sorry, seminary's good. <laughs> Something that was uh, more of a, a, a denial of the resurrection talk. And he said, well, it's hard to tell what's up or down. And the papa looked him in the eye and said, well, so I know, I know, I know where you stand and walked off. And they get in the car and he's fired up. But guys, that's because the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. And Paul's about to talk about the implications of what it means if we deny the resurrection from the dead. So it is a historical event, is supported by scripture, according to the scriptures. That's number one. It's supported by eyewitnesses. A whole bunch of people saw him. And when he's writing this letter, those eyewitnesses are, many of them are still alive. Right? This isn't like, oh, well, somebody told me 50 years ago or 500 years ago that this thing happened. I have, I don't, I can't really check it out. No, you can go find the eyewitnesses. He's listing them. You guys go check it out. So it is an historical event. The Christianity rises and falls upon the reality of a historical event. If that didn't happen, what we're doing today is pointless. You might as well join the Lions Club or something out. Lions Club, I'm sure, is a great thing. I don't know much about it. But. All right. Somebody's going, that's my favorite club. All right. Oh, HDMI 3, is it on? What happened? Paul's calling. It's there? There. Good. Quick parenthesis on Paul. I love, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. 
Verse 9, for, for I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, dash, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul is here applying the beauty of the gospel to his personal life. He recognizes his unworthiness. This is a great place to start. If you've never received the gospel, here's a good place to start. He recognized his unworthiness. He didn't try to whitewash it, didn't try to say, well, what I did really wasn't worse than some of these other people. No, he acknowledged that he was a sinner. In fact, he went back to the specific sin, the specific sin, the persecution of the church of God, that just, in a sense, was whenever he, Paul would think of sin, Probably those are the ones that immediately came to his mind. Does anybody have? You guys don't have to share this, please. But you might have some sin, some moment or period in your life that when you think about your life and you go, you look back, it just like it rises up like a Dallas skyline before you. And it's like, oh, that's my sin. And Satan tells you that that's too big a sin for God to deal with. That one is, Jesus died for lots of sins, but that one's so tall, so nasty, so bad, that there's no way that God can forgive you for that sin. Anybody hear that talk in your mind? I do. I'm immediately picturing something, a time in my life where I did something that was so, ugh, so corrupt and defiled that numerous times I've come back and been like, ugh, God, am I really clear of that? Have you really washed me from that thing? I have to deal with that and go back to the gospel and say, yes, because here's what Paul says, super important, make sure you get this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You are in Christ by the grace of God. Can you believe that? Don't don't think you're the exception in here. You really got to get that. You are not the exception. Your sin is not the exception to that all-encompassing offer of grace to all who would believe. God's grace is sufficient. You got to believe that. That's the gospel. I got to preach that to myself all the time. And then Paul says, what is the implication of this grace? What is his response to the grace? Is it, oh, well, the grace of God's so great, Christianity, the Christian life must be this kind of lazy boy, easy, lazy river kind of life, right? I can just kick back and let Jesus take care of it all. What does he say? You know, he says, the grace to me was not without effect. What did he do? He worked hard. And then he acknowledged, even as he's working hard, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God drives us to repentance. The grace of God drives us to live Christ-centered, transformed, holy lives. It's not a, it's not an excuse to indulge the flesh. It's a gift to move forward in life, in a transformed life. So make sure we go, it's going out of me. All right. Here we go. Let me jump forward. All right, this is the longer section, verse 11. 
whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. When he's talking about I or they, he's probably referencing the uh, the apostles. Um, and this is what you believed. <clears throat> but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So there, there were people going around saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. And he said some of you, so he's talking about people in the church. Some of you people in the church think there's no resurrection. Why would people think that? Why would they say that? Well, there was actually a pretty common idea in that time. When in Acts 23, they're talking about the Sadducees. And in a little parenthesis, verse 8, it says, um, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. At one point, Paul, when they're, when they're coming after him, he yells out that he's doing this for the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, because there's Sadducees in the room and there's Pharisees in the rooms, and he knew that was going to create this stir, right? Acts 26, verse 8, Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. And he says this, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul said that to King Agrippa because some people thought that it was incredible that God raised the dead. And it wasn't just the Jews, the Greeks, Acts 17, you know, the story of Paul on Mars Hill, he's speaking and the Greek philosophies or, you know, the little chin scratcher people are sitting there listening and, oh, this is interesting, something new. And they're listening and he seems like he's doing all right. He's making a really good speech. And then he talks about the resurrection. And it says this in verse 32 of chapter 17 of Acts. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. As soon as he brought up the resurrection, they were like, that's crazy. Why are people, why does everybody have such a hard time with the resurrection? Well, part of it's Plato's fault. Okay? There was something called Greek dualism. It's this idea that spirit is good, body and matter is bad. And the objective, the goal, is to get out of this earthly prison in a way as soon as possible. So you want to escape it and be basically this kind of disembodied spirit unattached from all the encumbrance of physical body. And so when he talks about resurrection, and he's talking about something beyond simply a floating around like a spirit, it is offensive to the philosophers of his day. So people rejected it because he offended what people understood as being wise and smart in their society. Are there aspects of the teaching of Christ that we teach today that are offensive to those who consider themselves the intellectuals of our society. Yeah, it was at that church. Ascension Sunday, resurrection. Oh, it just rose in their hearts. It offended the naturalistic man who liked to push away that idea that it was actually a historical event. Oh, we know better than that. Miracles don't happen anymore. That's crazy. So, there were people that were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on, verse 13. Well, let's, let's talk about what happens if there's no resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, number one. Number two, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him from, raise him, 
if in fact the dead are not raised. Sorry, I said that wrong. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. He has a little parentheses, and then he actually continues a little bit more in verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Implications of no resurrection. List is up there. Number one, our preaching is useless. Missions, what's the point of it? Evangelism, why do you do that? It's useless. There's nothing after this life. We disappear, we die, we're in the grave. What's the point of all that? If there's no resurrection, it's pointless. Your faith is useless. Verse 14, the apostles lied about God. Verse 15, they didn't just lie, they lied about what God did. That's bad. It's called a false prophet. Verse 17, we are still in our sins. We're still in our sins if there's no resurrection. The resurrection, in a sense, was God's stamp of approval upon the, the substitutionary death of Christ. There's many other things in that, but it is, in one sense, God saying, yes, I acknowledge that it has been paid in full. That when Christ said, it is finished, God says, yes, it is. You've done what you've come to do. You've completed the task, and I am now raising you up to sit with me in glory. Verse 18, if there's no resurrection, the dead are just that. They're dead, they're gone, they're no more. Verse 19, we are to be pitied. Poor, silly Christians, what are they thinking? Wasting their life, sacrificing things. Verse 29, if there's no resurrection, we're not, why are we getting baptized for the dead? You guys do that? That account that was in the Bible. There it is. Why do you guys don't get baptized for the dead? So that's an interesting question. What is going on here? So this, this is, let me just briefly talk about that. So the only group we know of that might have, that might practice, that do, they do apparently practice that today. Anybody know who actually does that still? LDS, Mormons, the only group that we know, that I know of that have that actually practiced that today. If we go through church history, uh, it's mentioned about this group called the Marcionites, which is kind of a heretical sect, kind of 100, 300 years after Jesus died. So apparently they did it. You almost don't hear about it at all. There's a guy named Tertullian, who's a church father. He actually seemed to imply that maybe it was a legitimate thing. Um, that, that's pretty much the only one. And then at 400 AD at the Council of Carthage, or so the Councils of Carthage, there's a group of them, they, they forbid it. They said, we, we ain't doing that. What's going on here, right? So why? Well, here's something in the Bible. Paul doesn't clearly say it's bad, but he does. If you read closely, he disassociates himself from the practice. Look at look at the text real closely, beginning in verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will 
What will we do? Oh, no, no, he doesn't say what will we do. What will those do who were baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are we, oh, no, he doesn't say we, sorry. Why are people, why are people baptized for them? And then in verse 30, he says, and as for us, so now he switches. Now he's talking about us again. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? So there seems to be an intentional, the way he's phrasing it, he's kind of not saying, hey, this is normal, we're all doing that. He's saying, why are some people doing that? And why would people be doing that? What is going on here? The short answer is we don't know. We have looked back into church history, and it's not abundantly clear. Perhaps, you know, there was um, there was a, a, a stage in um, a person's discipleship in which they were called a catechumen. That was, they were studying in preparation for baptism. And so somebody would come to the point where they're like, yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And they would have them study for a while before they got baptized. Let's say somebody died in the middle of that time. And they're like, oh, well, wait a minute. We didn't baptize the guy. We need to, we got it. Well, hold on a second. John, you want to come get baptized for Bill over here? We're, he didn't make it. We're going to, maybe, we don't know. It could be that it was even a idea that maybe some of the Old Testament saints never got a chance to get baptized. They're like, well, we, let's baptize for Abraham. He clearly is, you know, good, but let's go ahead and get, we don't know for sure. There was, there was this, there was also this other thing that was going on is people tended to, uh, Constantine specifically, we don't know how common it was in early, uh, within the first three, four hundred years of the church history. We, we don't know how common it was in Corinth, but there were some people who were delaying baptism till their deathbed. And it, because there was a teaching in the first 300 years or so, 400 years of the church that some people believed that baptism only cleansed you from prior sins. And so they were like, Constantine was like, well, I'm going to wait till I'm about to die. Right? <laughs> Let's go and wash it clean at the end, right? And we, again, we don't know if that was what was going on in Corinth at all. But there was, there was some people have that idea pretty early on in, in church history that that kind of came up, and which is why Constantine delayed his baptism until he was on his deathbed. But anybody ever tried to time the stock market? It's kind of hard. That's kind of like timing death, too. Right, it's not quite that simple, and so somebody was trying to delay, and oh, never mind, they missed it. Well, let's go, let's go, somebody. I don't know. We don't know. There's all sorts of speculation, but there was this, this somebody was doing it. Paul doesn't explicitly say that's wrong, but he very much seems to distance himself from it. So I am not advocating that we begin that practice. Just Keith, in case you're listening, I am not advocating that we begin (laughs) being baptized for the dead. But that's. Maybe that's what's going on. But the point he's making here is, is whoever's doing this, that's like doubly weird. It doesn't make any sense if people aren't raised from the dead. Why are you even bothering with that? Okay? That's your his church history lesson there. Enjoy that. Um, verse 30, a couple more things. Again, these are the implications of what what's the deal if there's no resurrection. What happens if there's no resurrection? Verse 30 endangering ourselves for the gospel is dumb. He didn't use the word dumb. But why are you risking why are you risking your life when if you die you're just you're gone? What's the point of that? Right? It's like running into a burning house to save a pencil. I mean, it's one thing to run in into a burning house if there's a reason that there's some significant benefit to take that risk, right? But if you're saving a pencil, really? What are you doing? What's your point? And that's kind of, he's saying that, why are we endangering ourselves with the gospel if there's no resurrection? What's the point of this? Verse 31, denying ourselves daily. Paul says, I die daily. 
That's a waste. If there's no resurrection, why is he suffering? Why do we wake up early to pray when we're tired? Why do we fast sometimes and deny ourselves the joy of food? Why do we resist our urges for various pleasures, resist those and turn away? It's an easier path just to chase whatever pleasure you want. Simple. Eat, drink. Tomorrow we die. Why do we do that? Why do we go out in 100-degree weather and knock on doors and try to urge people to believe in the good news of Christ? It's hot outside. Why do we do all these things? Why do we give our money away? Could you think of something better to do with your money? Why are you sacrificing? Why are you laying down your lives for the gospel? A guy named John Chow in 2018, at the age of 27, went to the North Sentinel Island to try to share the gospel with a people group that had never heard it before. They were a violent people. They had killed fishermen before who had accidentally washed up onto that island. Ways off the coast of India is where it's at. But he was convicted, and he spent years preparing, years praying, years getting ready to try to go and make contact. And he gets in his canoe, and he canoes out to the... He has some power, some fishermen to drop him off there, and he canoes out to there, and they come out, and they he looks like it's okay, and then all of a sudden the kid shoots a bow and arrow at him, and it embeds itself in the Bible that he was carrying. He quickly canoes back to the boat, and that night he's praying, and he's like, do I just give up on this, Lord? Is this not what you want me to do? Is this wrong? Am I going for no reason? And he feels convicted the Lord's still calling him to go. And so he tells the fisherman, I want you to drop me off this time and just... Go away. I don't want you getting implicated. I don't want you to get in trouble because it was uh, discouraged by the Indian government to do that. He wants those guys to get in trouble, so he was going to do it himself, go alone. So he goes on the island. A day or two later, the fishermen come back, and they see his body on the beach. Was that a waste? 27-year-old risked everything to bring the gospel to a group of people who had never heard it before, never had opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Was that a waste? Well, yes, if there's no resurrection from the dead. He threw away 50, 60 years of potential life if there's no resurrection. But if, if there's resurrection, that was a great choice. It was a beautiful choice. Praise God that he was willing to sacrifice all to bring the gospel. So Paul says this is the implication. If there's no resurrection, all this stuff here that we're doing is pointless. All right, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We say this on Easter, right? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And I'm going to briefly summarize here, but it, it briefly says that there's a few past events that are, that we know to be true. This is, this is kind of how the history of the world will play out. Uh, number one, Christ has indeed been risen. That's a past event. It has happened. It's a historical event. This was the first fruits of those who will raise from the dead. 
So when Christ rose from the dead, he was the first one to raise from the dead and not die again. Had anybody been raised from the dead before that? Yes, Jesus did it a couple of times. Lazarus, right? But those, he died again, right? Jesus rose to the dead, from the dead to never die again. So he's the first fruits of those who do that. When you look at a fig tree and it pops out these beautiful big first fruits, it's an indication the fig tree is alive. And that those connected to that fig tree, those branches connected to that fig tree, that they once, one day will, ne- will produce fruit in following that first fruit. He's the first fruits. It's also kind of like the idea of a hiker. You ever been hiking and you, you're trying to get to this beautiful waterfall and you're going over hill and down and hill and down and you're like, are we ever going to get there? And you see this big hill in front of you and everybody's beat. They want to quit, right? Somebody says, I'll go up and look at the top of the hill. And they run up to the top and here's the waterfall at the top of the hill. And they turn around and shout to everybody, hey, we're almost there. It's right at the top. Keep going. We're going to get there. Jesus, in his resurrection, goes ahead of us. And he turns around and he says, it's worth it. Finish your race. It is there. There is a resurrection. I'm declaring it. I've gone before you. I am the first fruits of the resurrection. And he says, come on, keep going. Keep going. Praise God. So have we been, are we going to be raised from the dead or have we been raised from the dead? Because Colossians chapter 1 says you have been raised with Christ. But here it's talking about future. So this is what we talk about in in theology uh, with the idea of there's a now but not yet of the kingdom. That there's a sense in which we are spiritually raised with Christ. We're already seated with him in the heavenlies. That there is this spiritual reality that we have been raised to live a new life of the kingdom. And we are in a sense, our old man is dead. We've gone through the grave. We've been buried with Christ. And we have been raised with him currently in our present reality. So in a sense, we are raised. But there is an ultimate sense where the kingdom is consummated. It's the fullness of the resurrection. It's the combination of not just spiritually but now bodily, that we are now raised to be with the Lord in the air. And the things of this life are done away with. Sin and death are no more. He's destroyed, though, all the dominion of the evil one. He no longer reigns over the earth. In the end, Christ will come and he will, destroy, he will destroy all dominion. And the final dominion that he destroys is what? The last enemy. It's our enemy. We want it destroyed. What's the last enemy to be destroyed? Death. He destroys death. Death dies. And we no longer die. We live forever with him eternally. It's a beautiful picture. That's, that's the way the world order will continue. I'm gonna, I could say a lot more on that, but let's let's keep moving to get towards the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. The resurrection body. This is a really long section, so I'm just going to read a few verses from it. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. I'm going to jump to 42. This is kind of the summary of this whole section, I think. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. 
it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So again, the Greek philosophers, remember, they didn't like the idea of putting back on the flesh after it died. Right? That seems crazy, right? And so they would they would be revolted by this idea of, oh, you got this decaying body, been in the ground for 40, 50, 60 years, and you want to put that back on? That doesn't make any sense. So Paul is distinguishing the idea that I'm not saying you show up looking just like the body that died. It is a more glorious, wonderful body. So what are the key distinctions? One, our earthly body is perishable. Anybody anybody feel like your earthly body feels perishable? Right? You know how that is, right? You walk in and you oh, there we go, there we go. They went that hamstring, right? It's, that's a weekend warrior. That, that's what happens when those guys are like 45, 50. They're like, man, I haven't done anything in 15 years, but I bet my body can just take off at a sprint. No problem, right? And all of a sudden, ah, you know, they're limping around because the body's perishable. It's decaying the whole time, right? I, my 15 year, I, I told my kid, I'm 45. I know I look like I'm like 28, but no. Okay, so I told my kids, none of y'all are going to beat me in a, a race until after I turn 45. So last summer, I'm 44. My big-headed 14-year-old, he's like, Dad, let's do this. And I'd beat him no more time. Oh, I'm sorry. The other rule is the race got to be less than 200 yards because I ain't running no two miles with you because he whooped me in that. And I was like, all right, let's narrow down the rule. No, you're not going to beat me until I'm 45. So I'm like, I could just hang on to this. I'm like six months till I turn 45 and I won. He goes off to this summer camp, spends four weeks. It's like military stuff. He's like running, push up, sit up. He's, he's ready to go. He's like, let's do this, dad. I'm like, all right, show yourself up. I've been sitting around eating bonbons all summer, <laughs> watching my body perish, right? It was decaying. It was anyway, I, he burned me. Made me look bad. My wife's got it on film. And I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, he's, he started too quick. Anyway, then we did it again. He did it again. So I don't even race him anymore. It's embarrassing. But the point is, is our bodies decay, right? We get old. We can't stop it. It's perishable. Dishonor. Aspects. Blemishes. Things about our bodies. Pooches that we wish weren't there. Right? There is things that are dishonorable about our bodies that we don't like. Weak. They grow weaker. Right, our backs give out. Natural versus spiritual. So the, so what exactly does the spirit, the eternal body look like? I don't know. A lot of people have speculated on that. I don't know. That's the short answer. The, 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 the even shorter answer is what is it like? It's better. You ever seen a pine cone over there? That's a sequoia pine cone. Oh, and I went off. Tricked you. That's a sequoia pine cone you're going to see in a moment on your screens. Nope. And I went too far. I got pushed the wrong button. All right. Little bitty pine cone you hold in the palm of your hand. That's a sequoia tree in the next picture. You see those little kids up there trying to hug it? That thing's a monster. The, the resurrection body is like comparing the sequoia pine cone with the sequoia tree. Sequoia pine cone, that's our natural bodies in this life. Sequoia tree. I don't know if that means we're going to be big. I didn't say that. It's just more glorious. It's more wonderful. It's the same thing, right? We're still who we are. People can still recognize it, but it's way different, way more glorious. 
It's like the difference between a sunflower seed and a field of sunflowers turning to face the sun in the morning. There is beauty and glory in that. Right now, we are seeds. All right, let me close and bring it to the end. In light of the resurrection, verse 54, let's see, let's start in 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, that's us, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, we won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. And we'll exchange these earthly tents for heavenly bodies, glorious, immortal, indestructible. We will live forever in glory with the Lord and we will reign with him is what Christ says. So because there really is a coming resurrection in which we will be raised to never die and live in eternal glory, because that is true, preaching, evangelism, and missions are the best use of your time. They are not in vain. Your faith is the victory. It is the path by which we overcome the world, 1 John 5, 4. We are no longer in our sins because there really is a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise again. They only sleep for a little while. We're going to see them again. So we do not grieve as those who have no hope because there's a resurrection. And we're not to be pitied when we suffer. Yeah, life's hard. But this momentary and light, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Not just a little bit outweighs them, it far outweighs them. A missionary who gave his life named Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He died in the prime of his life. But he's not to be pitied. He gained in eternal glory, he entered into glory. Martin Luther, in his famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, his very last line, he says this, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We can let this mortal life go. We don't have to hold so tightly. Don't let it, don't let me lose this life. Don't let me lose the treasures that I've built up in this life. Let me store up everything I can have for retirement so I'm happy and peaceful the last 10, 15 years of my life. No, store up for the kingdom because it's forever. The resurrection is real. We can live so differently. He closes in verse 58 with this. There, uh, because of the resurrection, we can always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We can always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not just sometimes, but always. 
not just partially. Let's save a little bit back. I want to, just in case things don't work out in the end, I want to have a little bit of fun stored up here in my pocket for right now. Oh, he says the resurrection's real. And we can, therefore, the implications of the fact of the resurrection is we can give ourselves fully to the, to the work of the Lord. Let me pray for us. And then you guys close in a song, right? And, um, Kevin, if you want to, Send everybody out of the way afterwards. Everything else you feel like you want to share, I'm just going to, let me just say a prayer. Lord, I just pray that first for myself, that I wouldn't lose sight of this, that I wouldn't preach it on Sunday and forget it on Monday, that when I go home today, that the, the reality of the resurrection would be central in my mind. And that when I am faced with opportunity to, to, to sacrifice or lay down something in this life, Lord, that I would remember that the resurrection's for real and it's going to happen and I can just, I can pour myself out for the kingdom. Lord, I pray that each one here, that we would pour ourselves out and give ourselves fully to your work because we know that our labor is not in vain and we're going to rise from the dead. Christ, you've promised it. Christ, you've demonstrated it. And we know that your promises never fail. So we wait in hope of the resurrection. Change us as we behold the beauty and the hope of the resurrection. Pray in Jesus. Amen.